Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in Parshat Beha'alotcha this morning, uh, which puts us at the triennial reading at Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. We're in the third year of the triennial reading. So we read the last third of every portion. And we'll begin with words that, uh, if you've ever attended synagogue on a regular basis on Shabbos morning, you will be familiar with these words. Robert, you want to read for us? When the ark was set out, Moses would say, Advance, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, and may your foes flee before you. And when halted, he would say... Return, O Lord, you who are Israel's myriads of thousands. All right, so we, do we know these words? Yes? Kuma Adonai Veafutsu Oivecha Veyanusu Misanecha Mipanecha The beginning of the Torah service. <laughs> there you go. So everyone's going on. You'll notice those words are not here. Right? So everyone who's continuing, right? They're here. Um, so what you get a sense of is how the rabbis cut and pasted. Right, so we go on singing, but those words aren't from here. The rabbis take those words from the for the rest of the opening of the Torah service from somewhere else. This happens throughout the Sidur, and the more we know of Torah, the more we appreciate the editorial work of the rabbis in crafting the liturgy for uh for services. So the when we open the ark at Shabbat morning, when we sing these words, we are singing the words that we have sung for literally thousands of years, going back to when they carried the ark uh, into war. The ark went into war. So uh, in the ancient world, peoples would carry into the battle, uh, or near the battle, um, would carry the... Um, the, what do you call it if it's their god? The 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 god the ah uh, the totem the what is it called? No, the god. No, no. Well, effigy. I don't know. We think of things hanging from trees. Um, the statue, whatever they would carry, a big statue of the god. Yeah. It's not a great word, idol. So <laughs> they would carry this big representation of the god into battle. And it was a you know it was how they evoked the power of their god or gods or goddess, whatever, um, to turn the battle for them. So the Israelites emerge, of course. Their culture emerges from that culture, from the Canaanite pagan culture. Uh, and so they too carry something into battle of their God. What Israel carries into battle is the footstool, right? We've talked about this, yes? God sits on the Kruvim, and the Aron, the Ark, is God's footstool. Because remember in the ancient world, the, the covenant, the agreement between the conquering king and the vassal kings, that covenant, that agreement goes in the footstool of the ruling king. So of course... 
in the footstool, in the ark, goes the covenant between Israel and Yudhevavhe. Yudhevavhe is understood to come down onto the Kruvim, onto the throne, uh, and so Israel carries the footstool into battle, like praying that God will, of course, descend and be victorious. That is why the language here is rise up, O God, and scatter your enemy, right? Because this is a war, this is a war poem. This is a war, not cry, but a, a war prayer that God, Yudhe Buffet should fight on behalf of Israel. Um, and, may those who hate you be caused to flee from before you, meaning before us, <laughs> right? Um, and when it would stop, then uh, they would say, Shuva Adonai, right? Return, O God, you who are Israel's myriad of thousands. So this is closing out chapter 10. And we're beginning chapter 11. It's interesting the tense that's used. We think he would... As, as, as he always does, and then it goes back to the past stuff. Where? Well, it's <laughs> it just read. What we just read. You're the reason. I'm, I'm the reason. That's right. I'm chuckling because you have the candy. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, so it's Paula's fault that you can't talk now. Okay, got it. <laughs> what we just read. Yeah. He would normally, this, this is the tense that's used. And then when we start 11, it goes back to the past tense. Uh-huh. In other words, the writer is saying this is what we traditionally do, and then he goes back to. So the, it's describing in the past, and it was when the ark would go out, they would say, arise, O God. Then you don't say when the ark went out, when the ark would go out, meaning this is going on in the past tense. So that gets into Hebrew grammar in terms of how it's translated. It's simp- It's the past in the Hebrew. Your translator chose when it would go out, the active participle. Mm-hmm. That is the Hebrew... That's the phrase I was looking for, the active part. Right, so the... <laughs> <laughs> by, <laughs> it's the <it's, it's>, <laughs> So he... Right, so... I mean, you... Right, right next to the preposition. Right. <laughs> so it's not wrong to translate it like that, but you could also say, when the ark set out, they would say. They said. When the ark went out, they said. And when it came back in, they said. You could translate it perfectly well in immediate past tense. But it's not wrong to say when it would go out, meaning it was happening frequently, they would say. That's not wrong. Um, and makes more sense in English, right? Because English, I mean, that nuance exists in Hebrew, but... Um, but look how much difference a translation can create in the feeling. Of- right. So, But Reuben, you're right that this is talking about something that repeats... Right, that would happen over and over again, which is why we translate it more more actively when it would go out. Um, then we're switching over to the past tense because we're getting the description of an incident. 
right? So one was about what used to happen frequently, and one we're getting now is a particular incident that is being recounted as having happened in the past. So good close reading. Um, all right, so what did happen in this incident? Now, just to, to set you up, to set you up, we're going to have three major incidents here, and they're all incidences of something that we would never think would happen in ancient Israel, something that we're shocked to see happen. What is it? Complaining. Complaining. Exactly. Aren't we shocked? <laughs> in a Jewish text that there would be gushrying and complaining. All right, so there's... These are episodes of complaint. We're going to read through the entire section. And I want you to note that there's three different complaints that are going on. Two, three narratives about complaint. One of them is broken into two. That possibly used to be two separate incidents and now is in one, have been conflated. That is that is the argument of um, the JPS uh, scholar, uh, Milgram, that these were possibly two very separate deals. Now they're put into one. But this, this is a narrative of complaint that goes through all three episodes. Let's see what they are. All right, Robert, you want to read? People took them to complaining bitterly before the Lord. The Lord heard and was incensed. A fire of the Lord broke out against them, ravaging the outskirts of the camp. The people cried out to Moses. Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. That place was named Tabarah because the fire of the Lord had broken out against them. The riffraff in their midst felt a gluttonous craving. And then the Israelites whipped and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Now our gullets are shriveled. There's nothing at all, nothing but this manna to look at, to look to. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and the color in it was like bedellium. The people would go about and gather it, grind it between millstones or pound it in a mortar, Boil it in a pot and make it into cakes. It tasted like rich cream. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall upon it. Would fall upon it. Moses heard the people weeping. That was a quick change. Uh, every clan apart, each person at the entrance of his tent. The Lord was very angry and Moses distressed. And Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why? Have I not enjoyed your favor, that you have laid the burden of all this people upon me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I bear them? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom, as a nurse carries an infant to the land that you have promised on oath to their fathers. Where am I to get meat to give all these people, when they whine before me and say, give us meat to eat? I cannot carry all these people by myself, for it is too much for me. If you would deal thus with me, kill me, rather. I beg you, and let me see no more of my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy of Israel's elders, whom you have experienced as elders and officers of the people, and bring them to the tent of meeting. 
and let them take their place with uh, there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will draw upon the spirit that is on you and put it upon them. They shall share the burden of the people with you, and you shall not bear it alone. And say to the people, Purify yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat me. For you should, you have kept whining before the Lord and saying, Only we have meat to eat. Indeed, we were better off in Egypt. The Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two, not even five days or, or ten or twenty but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. For you have rejected the Lord who is among you by whining before him and saying, Oh, why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, The people who are with me number 600,000 men. Yet you say, I will give them enough meat to eat for a whole month? Could enough flocks and herds be slaughtered to suffice them? Or could all the fish the sea be gathered for them to suffice them? And the Lord answered Moses, Is there a limit to the Lord's power? You shall soon see whether what I have said happens to you or not. All right, so let's, 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 it's getting to be a lot to take in. Is the first statement, be careful what you wish for? <laughs> Big time. Big time. All right. So the first complaint is at Tabira. The people complain. God fumes. And there's a punishment. People complain. God gets upset. And there's a fire at the edge of the camp. And everything dies down for a little bit, right? Everything quiets down. Then, what happens? Then... We get a complaint about wanting meat. Meat. We want meat. We're tired of mana. Who makes this complaint? Who starts this business? It's always the riffraff. It's always the riffraff. So it's a very it's the same in Hebrew as it is in English. Riffraff is automatopoeia in a way, right? Riffraff. It just kind of describes itself, asafsuf, literally those who were gathered. But it's but it's not how you say those who were gathered, right? It's a kind of colloquial term, asafsuf, kinda the great unwashed. The great unwashed. Exactly. So the ones that came with Israel. Not Israel, God forbid, right? The ones who came with Israel started it. Lots of the Kabbalists and the mystical tradition takes this to mean it says um, the riffraff in their midst. And so a lot of our spiritual teachers come to say it's the riffraff it's in, in our midst, right? In us. It is the, it's that part of us that refuses to be educated and trustful and learn from the past and learn that it's going to be okay and, right? The, I mean, they've seen, they've seen over and over and over and over and over again that God works on their behalf, right? So it, but they refuse it's the part of them, says our, our spiritual tradition, that refuses to trust, that refuses to believe it's going to happen this time. Um, the part of us, every time that says, you know, this time when I stand up to give a talk, I'm going to flop. Right? If that's what you listen to, things don't go terribly well. Right? I mean, it's there. We know that. But 
other parts of us overrule that or else we don't get very far, right? Then we're not very successful. And that's indeed what happens here. So however we read it, um, the riffraff in their midst felt, what, what does your translation say? A gluttonous craving. Okay. Um, so we're gonna, we're gonna come back to this. So they felt a gluttonous craving and they want meats. And then they start talking about, we remember all the free buffets that we went to in Egypt. Right? Um, how do you think this is gonna sound to Yude Buffet? Ooh, not good. And now our gullets are shriveled. There's nothing at all, nothing but this miraculous mana that yod heh vav brings every day to feed us in the wilderness. Nothing but that. There's only this mac and cheese that my mother prepared. That's like my granddaughter who says, candy, my gluttonous is shriveled, I need candy. All you're giving me is vegetables. How can I possibly survive on this? Onions. Onions. But then, they, but then the next paragraph goes on to describe it as having beautiful color and beautiful taste. So, of course, right? Of course the next sentence is that the mana was fantastic. It was really good What does that do to what just happened to their with their complaint? Right? The author, the editor, is making it clear that their complaint had... No value. no value, no basis, right? It was absolutely ridiculous. And the Midrash, the, the rabbis go on, and um, in the Midrashim they write about mana, they say that it tasted like whatever you wanted it to taste like. You know, that when you ate it, whatever you imagined, that's what it tasted like. So even though you were eating vegetables, it tasted like candy, right? So that it couldn't get possibly get better, and they start whining for, right, the food, the cuisine of Slavery. Um, all right, so you can imagine how that's going to go over, right? Um, I have a long scientific explanation about what mana might be actually based on, but we don't have time. All right, so Moses hears the people weeping, every clan apart um, at the entrance of his tent. And God was pretty angry. Moshe is distressed. And what does Moshe normally do now? He talks to God. And says what? Well, it depends what the situation is. But what does he usually say? Please be nice. And what did you say, Robert? Please be nice. Please be nice. Forgive these people. Don't don't punish them. Right? They're they're tired, and you know them. You created them. You made them. Right? You know. So don't don't hurt them. What will the other nations say? Right? Or whatever he can think of in the moment. Be nice. Is is what he usually says. What happens here? What happens here? Moses is at his wit's end. Moses says to God, and we're expecting it to be, forgive your people. And what does he say? Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found your favor that you have laid the burden of this people upon me? Did I conceive this people? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries an infant to the land that you promised to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all these people when they whine before me and say, give us meat to eat? I can't carry these people by myself. It's too much for me. If you would deal thus with me, rather kill me. I beg you and let me see no more of my wretchedness. This is Moshe's response. 
So that's a big complaint. This is this is not good. <laughs> Moshe, I'd say yes, he was a little upset. So we have the complaint here is meat, which is a complaint by the people. And what do we have next as part of this set of complaints? To be is Moses complains about his burden, the burden of leadership. All around, this is not good, right? Moshe does not intercede on the people's behalf. Milgram wants to suggest that a lot of things that happen next are punishment of Moses by God. So I want you to tell me what you think um, as we work through the text. Do you buy it? Um, or is God answering Moses's plea? All right. So Milgram suggests Moses does not intercede. He does not do his job. And God, but you've got to love this. God is furious with Moses for not arguing with God about punishing the people. It's so Jewish. <laughs> God is disappointed that Moshe doesn't argue against God to save the people. Okay. So God says at verse 16, gather 70 elders of whom you have experienced as elders and officers of the people, meaning people that you can trust, and bring them to the tent of meeting and take your place with that, take, let them take their place there with you. I will come down and speak with you there. I will draw on the spirit that is upon you. Whose spirit is that? What is that? Ruach. So that is God's spirit. That is on Moshe. I'm going to draw from the spirit, my spirit that is upon you, and put it on them. Milgram says this is the punishment. You weren't ready to be the leader that I'm going to take from what I gave you and I'm going to put it on other people because you can't handle the job and they shall bear the burden of the people with you and you shall not bear it alone and say to the people, purify yourselves tomorrow and you shall eat meat for you have kept whining before essentially me, God, right? If only we had meat to eat, indeed we were better off in Egypt. I'll give you meat. I'll give you meat. Not one day will you eat it. Not two. But a whole month until it comes out your nose, you will eat it. Till, till you can't stand it. For you have rejected Adonai who was among you by whining and saying, oh why did we ever leave Egypt? So the parallel example would be you want candy? You don't appreciate the food I make for you and how hard I work to put it on this table? No problem. Here's candy. You're going to eat it for 30 days. Till it's coming out your nose you're going to eat chocolate. Till you never want to see chocolate again you're going to eat chocolate. (laughs) Well that doesn't happen to God. Right? Clearly. All right. The Department of Children's Services does not, right, bother Yudhei Buffet. So, um, so Moses says, okay, now at this point, what, what do we expect Moses should be saying? I didn't mean it. 
<laughs> I didn't mean it. Momentary lapse. Got it. Um, thank you for feeding the people. Thanks for handling that. Appreciate it. I'm going to go take a nap, and I'm going to come back, and we'll, we'll have another conversation. Right? But what does Moses say instead? The people who are with me number 600,000 and you say I'll give them enough meat to eat for a whole month? Could enough flocks and herds be slaughtered to suffice? Or could all the fish in the sea be gathered to suffice? And God answers Moses, is there a limit to God's power? You shall soon see whether what I've said happens or not. This is, this is not good. This is just not good. So what does Moses do here, essentially? Questioning God's ability. Right? Not bad enough that he wasn't ready to stand up for the people and intercede. This is not my judgment. I'm saying this is how the text understands it. He should have interceded. He doesn't do it. Instead, he adds to the complaints. Then when God says... I'm going to take care of this business. Moshe says, really? Where are you going to get McDonald's for all of these people? Really? Do you see golden arches anywhere? Really? There's 600,000. Really? Are there enough McDonald's in the world to feed these people? So it's just, it's this really bitter, cheeky awfulness that's happening, obviously, inside Moses, which we'll talk more about. But... But this is the response, right? Um, and so God is obviously not pleased. So Moses goes out and tells the people all this stuff. He gathers 70 of the people's elders, puts them around the tent. Then God comes down in a cloud and speaks with him. He drew upon the spirit that was upon him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they spoke in ecstasy, but did not continue. So they have an episode of 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 prophecy, right? They they are given the gift of what Moses has and they start speaking I don't know what ecstasy is supposed to mean. Um, huh? That's very good. But the Hebrew word is that they prophesied. So it's from Navi, from the word uh, to be a prophet, right? Um, they, they prophesied. But isn't it good that Navi now has a whole active Congress to help. So that is the question. That's one question this raises is, was God intending to give Moses a break? That that God sees that Moshe's burned out and answers with, okay, I, I, I get it. I will share the burden. You'll share the burden. Okay, that that is one interpretation. Um, as I said, Milgram says this is a lessening of Moshe's specialness, if you will, of his uniqueness. Because now 70 people do what he's been doing. But I think it's interesting that they stop. They don't, they don't then go on to be a body of 70 that help him with prophecy, right? And sharing conversations with God and take turns, right? They stop. But... Something interesting happens. Look at verse 26. Two men. Oh, by the way, um, and this, this, this is some of where we get the, um, idea that the Spirit of God rests on someone and they speak in tongues, right? They, 
right? This is some of that stuff that we see in evangelical Christian, certain charismatic, you know, um, Christian circles is comes from here. The idea that the Spirit of God rests on one, and when that happens, one begins to speak, right? And that's the ecstasy. Yes, yes. So some of that, I mean, the, the, it comes from here. <clears throat> the two men, one, I mean, and there's other places it comes from in Torah. I'm not saying it's just here, but the, but this is one of the places that you can see where people could say, oh, well, the Spirit of God descended on me, and right. So two men, one named Eldad and the other Medad, had remained in camp, yet the Spirit rested upon them. So they didn't go to the Ohel Moed, to the tent of meeting with the 70. But somehow the Spirit rests on them anyway. So they must have been one of the ones that were supposed to be counted, or I'm not sure. Um, They were among those recorded, right? But they had not gone out to the tent. So they were supposed to be, I mean, they were leaders of the people, and should have been on that list. They were on the list, but didn't go. But the Spirit came upon them anyway. And they they spoke uh, in ecstasy, says my translation, which I don't quite understand. But they they prophesied in the camp. A youth ran out and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are acting the prophet in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' attendant from his youth, spoke up and said, My Lord Moses restrained them. What does Joshua see in this? He, he sees maybe his job being lessened if other people. Oh, interesting. Joshua thinks his job might is lessened. Maybe he sees himself as the next taking over. Okay, yeah. so maybe Joshua sees a threat to his position as Moses' number two. Right. Okay, that's interesting. What else do you think is going on with Joshua? Maybe he's trying to protect Moses, his position. Right. So he sees a threat. He sees danger to Moshe that, you, you know, and he defers to Moshe's authority, right? And, but says, you, you need to do something about this. They're essentially challenging your authority in the camp, right? They're, they're doing what, what you're supposed to be doing. Um, but Moses said to him, are you wrought up on my account? Would that all of God's people were prophets, that God put God's spirit upon them. Moses then re-entered the camp together with the elders of Israel. So what does Moshe respond to this idea that his position is being threatened? He's glad. He's glad. His burden is lifted. His burden is lifted. So Moshe seems relieved. relieved. He seems okay with sharing his authority. Right? So he doesn't seem, he doesn't defend himself. What happened with Korach? What did Moshe do when Korach challenged when that whole thing went down? Moshe said, here's what's going to happen to you. God doesn't even have a chance. Moshe says, here's what's going to happen, and then looks to God like, you better make that happen, because my, my authority is on the line here. right? I just said they were going to get swallowed up. right? Moshe's very clear in that case right, to defend himself. And here, something else right, is going on. And, and I think part of that might be that Moshe understands that God did this. That, that God did it. Korach and Datan and Aviram take it upon themselves to challenge Moshe. Whether they were right or wrong, we've had that discussion a few times. Um, but in this case, God does this. And so Moshe seems to be saying, okay, like if God wants other people to prophesy, that's okay. You know, frankly, I'm ready for a vacation. Couldn't it be just that Moses now is either aging or maturing? or he just He's different than with Korach. He's now... 
led these people. He suffered through them, and he's finally starting to say, you know, maybe I better sort of deal this off. So I would say that's a possibility, except Korah happens a few chapters from now. So that's not it's not happened yet. So that's not it. They'll spend a lot of time shepherding these people. I mean, it would, it would certainly be irrational. Hey, I'm just tired. You know, let, let somebody else do that. So he's, he's clearly tired. That's very, very clear. Well, it, you know, I agree with he is clearly tired, but it seems, uh, uh, why would he object to the spirit of the Lord being in seventy people uh, amongst the masses—that's that, got to be a terrific thing. Be- because if you care about your authority, and if you care about being special, and if you care about power, then you would very much mind that. So we believe this is a humble man. But we believe that's one of the reasons the story's here. This is an episode. because you ask the question, we're like, duh, it's Moses. Why would he care? Well, because but but the authors of the story, and including the story in the collection, probably is about yeah. showing. That Moshe truly doesn't care about about authority and about his special position, because most people would. Most people are very tempted by most politicians. Um, but most politicians, <laughs> right? That's right. That's right. Were that to happen, this would be a very uh, a very uh, good lesson in interdependence and caregiver burnout. Um, and caregiver burnout, that is a good term yeah. for what is happening so to I, Moshe for sure. I would mark this passage for yourself. If I were teaching a wise aging class again, I will definitely make a note of that. Thank you, Paula. <laughs> um, so what happens next? A wind from God starts up, swept quail from the sea, and strewed them over the camp. About a day's journey on this side, and about a day's journey on that side. All around the camp, and some two cubits deep on the ground. The people set to gathering quail all that day and all the next day. So some some interpreters want to say it was only at the outer edges of the camp. Others want to say it was from a day's journey here all the way across to a day's journey over there. There is a phenomenon where, I don't know if you know this, but Israel is part of a migratory pattern of birds. Um, it is one of the most popular, place, popular places for bird watchers to go is Israel. Um, one of the things that makes its way across Israel in its flight are quail. There comes a point in the journey where the quail are so exhausted that they drop. Um, and they are so tired that they can't get away if someone comes to chase them. So huge, huge swaths of quail that drop because um, they are exhausted. And then, of course, they are hunted um, and slaughtered and eaten. So they've, they've known about this in this region. I mean, it's been happening like this for thousands of years. So it's, it's like the plagues. It's not that you can't come up with scientific explanations or not explanations. Why? It is scientifically true that these things happened. doesn't help our story. Like, oh, well, that's what happened. There was a bunch of quail that dropped from the sky. It's like, what happened all the time? It doesn't make a difference. So um, it makes a difference that it was something they saw and knew about, and so that makes sense that it goes into their story. But it has to be that God brought it in that particular moment, or the story has no power. Right? So... Um, 
So it's just interesting to know that this does happen, um, has been a phenomenon. Um, and so God brings, so the quail drop that day at that exact moment. So we know it's a miracle from God, right? Um, and they gathered, they gathered it, right? How did they deal with mana? They gathered it, right? So we have the same, you know, um, linguistically and you know, literarily we have the same thing. God brings the mana, they collect it, right? God brings the quail, they collect it. When they eat the mana, they are satisfied. Well, they used to be, right? Sated, right? What's going to happen when they eat the quail? The meat will... Uh, so they gathered it all around the camp. The meat was still between their teeth, not yet chewed, when the anger of God blazed forth against the people, and God struck the people with a severe plague. The place was named Kivrut Chatava because the people who had the craving were buried there. Then the people set out for Chatzerut. The, te- the meat wasn't even chewed between their teeth. Everyone who had the craving, everyone who ate that quail, Died. E. coli. <laughs> <laughs> Yudhe Vav hate E. coli, right? It wasn't even meat, it was chicken. <laughs> it wasn't even meat, it was foul. Foul play. Foul, foul. Foul play. All right, so they... So they eat the man, the mana comes, they gather it, they eat it, they're no longer hungry, they're satisfied. The quail, that you complain about that, Fine, I'll give you what you asked for. The quail comes, they gather it, they eat it, they die. So, so that's what happens here. God fumes. I'll give it to you till it's coming out of your nose. And then we get the punishment. <laughs> Now, number three, when they were in Chatzerot, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married. He married a Cushite woman, they said. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has God not spoken through us as well? God heard this. And now Moses was a very humble man, more so than any other man on earth. Suddenly, God called to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. So the three of them went out. God came down in a pillar of cloud, stopped at the entrance of the tent, and called out, Aaron and Miriam. Like, never a good thing, right? Never. Eliana? Yeah, never. <laughs> <laughs> the two of them came forward, and he said, Hear these my words. When a prophet of God arises among you, I make myself known to that prophet in a vision. I speak with that person in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is trusted throughout my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, plainly and not in riddles. And he beholds the likeness of Adonai. How then did you not shrink from speaking against my servant Moses? Still incensed with them, God departed. As a cloud withdrew from the tent... There was Miriam, stricken with snow-white scales. When Aaron turned toward Miriam, he saw that she was stricken with scales. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, account not to us the sin which we committed in our folly. Let her not be as one dead who emerges from his mother's womb with half his flesh eaten away. So Moses cried out to God, saying, Ana elna refanala, the famous prayer in our liturgy for healing. O oh God, 
pray, heal her. But God said to Moses, if her father spat in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut out of camp for seven days and then let her be readmitted. So Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days and the people did not march on until Miriam was readmitted. After that, the people set out from Chatserot and encamped in the wilderness of Paran. Right? Okay. So it turns out that we get a third complaint, this one. Right by Aaron and Miriam against Moses. And what happens? God fumes. But only Miriam is punished. Aha. God fumes and there's a punishment. Pam brings up the question, why is it that Miriam is punished? And and not Aaron. Any guesses? That's where the rabbis go. She's the one who spoke. She's the one who started it. She's the one who said it. She's... Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moshe. What we have is Miriam's words. Right? So, Pam, you you love where the rabbis go. Tell me. Tell me what what to do with this. I, You know, where my, my, my mind, not the rabbis, I just feel like... It's, uh, let's blame the female, you know, because it looks like they were in conversation. Even if Miriam Miriam started it, Aaron could have said, hey, 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 that's our brother, and he didn't do that. So you don't buy what the rabbis say? No, I'm not buying that. Okay. We're in the conversation talking about the brother. Okay. So Pam says, I don't buy it. Aaron could have stopped it. That Aaron was culpable. Mm hmm. That Aaron was culpable. They were. Right, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Okay, so they were both having a conversation, and then we get, we get, um, then we get Miriam punished. Okay. Wasn't Eve going to also? <laughs> yes, it was. I, I think it reflects the perhaps the times. Women bore the brunt. Oh. Let's change that to a different tense. Adam was punished too. So look at your look at your Hebrew at verse 12. The first verb in verse 12. Miriam be This is one of the places the rabbis find proof or an indication that it was Miriam because what should it have said? Plural. The Hebrew here is feminine singular. So the rabbis want to say, Aaron's name is there, but it clearly says, Miriam. Miriam spoke, and Aaron, whatever. So this is one of the places they want to go to defend that it was Miriam who was the instigator, right, of the gossip, and that's why she and not he were punished. So we can buy that or not. I, ironically... Find this an indication of Miriam's power. I don't think it's about denigration of women, personally. I think it's Miriam who's punished because it's Miriam who has the power on some level to challenge Moshe. She is called Nivia. Aaron's not called Navi. Right? He's going to get the priesthood, whatever. Miriam's called Nivia. Moses is a Navi. She's called the feminine 
in Torah of what Moshe is. I think there's a whole lost Miriam tradition that had Miriam be quite powerful as a Niviyah in her own right. That there was a whole Miriam tradition. And she was one who led. She led the people, right? She... She 100% was playing the tambourine because she led them. When the God delivered them and there was a miracle, it's Miriam who knew what to do. It's Miriam who said, we have to celebrate. This is what we do. We dance. We sing. We, you can imagine it was ecstatic dance. You can imagine it was fervored and it was a religious experience. What she was doing was a leading a religious response of the congregation to what had happened. What were the guys doing? Right, we're eating quail. So, so, uh, so Miriam in that in that powerful position of authority might have had more, might have been more of a threat in certain ways to Moshe's authority. Not every way. Obviously, this is not written by feminists. I get that. I'm not dreaming. I do think that it could be an indication that it's actually Miriam who's the rival to Moshe. And that, because Aaron's dealing with the priesthood, and the Aaronid writers have Aaron and the priesthood. They don't ever have them challenging Moshe. And like it, they're just two different roles. So we know that there was tension between the Mushite clans and the Aaronid clans. We know that. And that we know that there was a fight in the text. We can see it when Aaron gets added. Moshe, God spoke to Moshe and Aaron. It's like those are the Aaronid clans adding their guy. You know, right beside Moshe. But it's never about a direct, Confrontation. I wonder, though, that folks who might have had more of a charismatic female, you know, leader coming out of the pagan world, that would not be unheard of. You had priestesses. You had very powerful priestesses. So if you've got a Miriam priestess tradition and folks early in Israel who are very attached to that model of charismatic leadership, it is very likely that those stories, right, are also woven in here, you know, in, in ways that are, of course, by the patriarchal yud hey vav hey champion and Moshe wins, of course. We, that goes without saying. But the same way we rescued Eve and Hagar, right, and all these other narratives, what, when we try to look at what the tradition was that isn't represented here, but we know from the ancient Near East is common, I really believe it's an indication that it's Miriam who, who had the ability to challenge Moshe, and that's why she had to be punished. The same way Eve had to be taken down, and had to be, you know, the snake had to be taken down, because that was a symbol of the goddess. It's the same stuff that the patriarchal author wants to take down Miriam, because she's the real threat. So I love that. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to just make an observation on what happened here. Because this is really what you're teaching is, is in some ways, to me, my takeaway is attitude is everything. Because we went, you know, with all due respect to my Hever here, uh, victim, 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 right? You know, it's anti-women then, it's anti-women now, to, you know, women in powerhood. And at some point in time, I mean, there's truths in both stories, but it's how are you going to live your life and go forward you know, viewing that, you know, as a woman, you can make a difference in this world, you can be empowered. We have all these tremendous stories in the Torah and throughout history that you can take <coughs> and lessons from, or you can say, you know, we've been beaten down and we were screwed and done. So it's, it's all about your attitude and how you go forward. Right. Right. 
Absolutely. Okay. Um, I just have a question about punishment. What's the point of it? Like, with God being God, how one interprets that. Um, you know how the people are. <laughs> like, why are you punishing them? Why are you killing them? Why are you getting upset? It's like you, I feel like I'm going to expect that from you. Why would I punish you? It's an interesting thing to look at in Torah. We often have parallel stories. There's one time they complain and they get fed. Another time they complain and they get dead. <laughs> Moshe is told to strike the rock, water comes. Moshe strikes the rock and he gets punished with not going into the problem. So there's, there's, we have doublets of a lot of stories in Torah. And God responds really differently in each one. And the rabbis scramble, right, to say, well, he was told to speak to the rock, not hit the rock, but... If you hit the rock and water comes, is it really such a far thing to think, if I hit it again, it, it, I'll get more water? Like, so the rabbis scramble to defend God, but really if you look at it, it's a very interesting question. What ticks God off? And the commentators who ask the questions about this story, what really ticks God off? What's the punishment really for? What's it really about? Right? Um, and it seems here that... It's all about vindicating Moses. That Moses usually says, stop, 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 stop. Don't, please don't do anything to them. And God listens, right? But the people come, Aaron and Moses complain that Moses, you know, has too lofty a position. Who does he think he is? We, we prophesied too. Which also points to a tradition that we're missing. Right? Haven't we spoken on God's behalf? Well, where do we see that? We don't see that. But it clearly was a tradition that they also prophesied. So, we prophesy too. So, so that God is coming to Moshe's defense. Moshe doesn't defend. Moshe doesn't say, like he did the Korach, here's what's going to happen to you. Moshe doesn't want something to happen to them, right? So it seems God is vindicating Moshe here. You're going to question that my guy has authority? Watch this, right? Um, here, um, it's it seems that it's about the people saying, you're not feeding us. Right, And so God seems to be furious that they who should have been serving God with joy and gratitude and whatever can't get it. Now, you can ask the question, what does punishing do? How does it help? That would be a very interesting study. What What is the psychological motivation that God has for right? Um, but we're not dealing with a people in terms of authoring these texts who would have had that kind of approach to the story. Does that make sense? Like we, we want our characters to act out of, and we're going to talk about their motivation. Um, it was kind of understood in the ancient world. You mess with the gods, you get in trouble. And if you've got pagan gods, you don't even have to do anything wrong to get in trouble. Right? Hera can be ang- angry at Zeus because you're really beautiful or talented or smart and you get zapped. You haven't done anything wrong, right? Except maybe draw Zeus's attention. Um, but so, so the pagan gods are wistful. There's no rhyme or reason. The reconstruction of that relationship that you could just get zapped because things, terrible things happen all the time. And it was the, it was the gods. The gods are unhappy with you. Go propitiate the gods and maybe, maybe they'll like stop, right? Or they'll miss you or they'll just cover their, you know, whatever. The reconstruction of that idea by the Israelites is that it's always deserved. So we see it as like, what does God think God's going to get out of this? What is going to change? You know, but that's kind of a modern reading. In the ancient world, 
the gods were whimsical. They could destroy anybody they wanted to, a whole people, right? Because I bet I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. And then, boom, nations are just destroyed, right? Torah is very clear. It, the punishment is always earned. It is always deserved. It is always just. It never happens for no reason. It happens because we do something. And for us, that might be really antiquated in its time. That was a radical, radical statement that God would never just punish because God had a bad day or was fighting with God's wife, right? Yes. I'm trying to sort of figure out what Moses was thinking uh, when, when he goes to God and he says, look, I'm beat. I've schlepped these people all over the place. I'm tired. They complain all the time. And then God says, you know, bring me 70 leaders and we're going to solve your problem. And he feeds them and he gives them quail and then he kills them. Just kills them outright because he got them that he was going to do that. And yet Moses is sitting there. You kind of think Moses must have said, you know, if I complain to God about these people, I'm actually killing them. I'm going to sign them to death. Because it happens all the time. Right. I mean, this. what what relationship does that put Moses in? I mean, it's a really interesting question. Is, like, the, is he a tool of God? Is he just a supplicant? He's not... So the rabbis often use the metaphor of a court because the rabbis were lawyers, right? So they they used the image of a court, and then Moshe's job is to be the defense attorney. But he knows, and with these guys are going to die. With no, he doesn't. He he doesn't know that. Had he defended them, had he had they had a good defense attorney, God might have said, "All right, fine." I'll give them a little quail. We'll let them have it for two days. Let's hope they get over it. Right? But they better not complain again. Right? Because that's what always happens. But but Moshe doesn't do his job as the defense attorney. There's no one to defend the people. And so instead Moshe goes, why do I have to deal with this client? I know they're guilty. Why do I have to deal with them? They're terrible. I hate showing up for work every day, right? So there's no one defending the people. And so God has to do what God has to do, which is just, which is every one of you don't deserve to live after what I've done for you. Moses must have had called him the psychiatrist. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, you have to wonder how Moshe comes back to God to do his job, right? And, right? Robert? Um. <clears throat> I, get, I appreciated your uh, uh, starting us with the one, two, and three, and it, I, I just can't forget one. <laughs> it was very short, but the first thing that happens is the people complain. Moses does his job. God sends out this fire. No, I'm sorry. Fire comes out, and then Moses tells God, "Please don't do this," and he stops. So. Uh, Moses tried. I mean, God warned people. The fire came out. At the edge. Didn't hurt anybody. And nobody got hurt. Moses did his job. That was one. That's the way it's supposed to go. Right. Because <laughs> the people it, are going to keep complaining. So but here's how it can work. We sort of, we sort of <laughs> forgot that. And then the next thing that happens is, immediately after that, I mean, the warning, the, the serious fire, you know, was out and put out. And one word later... Uh, the people start up again, and they said something really bad, I thought, into it. It wasn't just, we don't want to meet. 
we should never have left Egypt. You should not have taken us out of Egypt. That is a very bad thing to say. This is not just we're hungry. Right. This is, wait a minute. The God, this is, you know, don't fool with idols. And remember, I brought you out of Egypt to sort of like the... The biggies. The, the biggies that, that you just... That'll get you zapped every time. That, that, you know, they, they underpin our faith. So, I, you know, I sort of, uh, that's sort of my... So, I, Robert, I like, I like where you go with how they earned such a terrible punishment isn't just that they wanted something they didn't have. It's that they not only weren't grateful for their freedom and God feeding them and protecting them, but they go a step further to say, we'd rather be back in slavery. So for me, the teaching for today, for me, is our faith, our tradition believes one of the worst sins we can commit is not being grateful that we are free, that we are fed, and to long for anything else, right, is chutzpah. It's, right, is beyond chutzpah. It is heresy. It is heretical, and I'm using that term on purpose, and I'm not using it as sarcas- sarcasm. I mean it. It is, and I believe this, it is heresy. For for us in our time, I think yes, because because so much flows from that. If I'm not grateful for my freedom and what I have, what am I not gonna do? Work for the freedom of other people. When I start getting all self pitying and all whiny that well, I don't have a house as big as any people in the Palisades, right? Right? That immediately corrupts everything I'm about. Everything, how much money I give, how much time I'm willing to give, how much I'm willing to work on behalf of causes that work for the homeless, that work for people in other countries whose homes have been devastated, whose homes are, you know, pieces of cardboard with tin during the monsoon season. Watch the movie Happy. Watch the movie Happy. That's your homework. Because that movie starts with a scene of a rickshaw puller, I forget in what country, um, who goes home to a lean-to of tin and cardboard with a slab in the middle that they sleep on. And then when the monsoons come, they're soaking wet the whole season. And he is happy. He's happy. It's, it, and you're going to think, oh, yeah, right. Like, I mean, I was like, yeah, right, right. But then he explicates to the film crew. You're like, look at my son. Look how beautiful my son is. Look how he's healthy. I come home every day and I see him sitting there waiting for me. That he's waiting for me on the stoop. And he's running through mud and everything is a rickshaw. It's horrible. And my son is there every day when I come home. That is what our tradition demands. And we're not living like that. They weren't living like that. They were fed they were closed, they were protected, they were free, and they had not been born to freedom. They had been born to poverty and and poverty of spirit and of material wealth and of control of their lives and their own destinies. And when you stay there or even long for you know any part of that and aren't grateful, that defines 
everything. And it seems that that is the worst. And I believe in our time, it is absolutely the cause of what's going to kill the planet. Not to put too fine a point on it or too hyperbolize. Consumption, I don't have enough, so I need more, is going to kill life on this planet. Period. We know that. It's happening now. If we don't get the lessons of this, we are doomed, my friends. Doomed. If we don't learn how to truly be grateful and truly rein in our cravings, that's what this is about. It's about craving. I know we don't have time. If you'll just bear with me, I just want to touch on this. You can take it home and read it yourselves. Um, but I want to touch on this idea of craving that comes to us from the tradition that when we look closely at the text, the peeper, the peeper, the peeper, the peeper, don't be a peeper. The people bitterly complained to Adonai. We've read it before, so while you're getting your papers handed out, I'll just go over it. The people complained bitterly, right? A fire of Adonai broke out at the sides of the camp. The people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed, and the fire died down, just like Robert said. That's number one. Here comes complaint number two. Verse number four. The riffraff in their midst felt a gluttonous craving. The Hebrew... The Hebrew of that is hit avu ta'ava. So you don't have to know Hebrew to know that things look a little similar up here. This looks similar, right? That's on purpose. I can't see it. So, a craving, craving. A cravenous craving. Right? So what, there isn't English that can do this. But in Hebrew, you can. If you use it twice, it kind of intensifies it. A cravenous craving is what they crave. Right? So, but, ha, huh, our tradition, if you look at... Right here it says the teaching from the Sfat Emet, Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger. Right, so this is written like a page of Talmud. It's a great book, by the way. Um, so we've got the, the text in the middle. Then we have commentary all around it. I'm going to the commentary on the top left corner of the text. Rabbi Yehuda Leib Ger quotes Rashi. What does Rashi say? If only we had meat. They can't be complaining about meat. Why? Because it's already said in Exodus, a mixed multitude went up with them and very much livestock, flocks and herds. What does that mean? They had meat. And if you say, but they had already eaten them, meaning they're, oh yeah, that went out with them from Egypt, but they're finished with it. And so now they're upset because the meat's gone. I can reply, it is also stated in Numbers 32, meaning after this Parsha, the Reubenites and Gadites own cattle in very great number. So it can't be that there isn't meat. So what's Rashi already setting up? They just want more. Aha. Want more. Rashi's saying it is don't buy it when it says they wanted meat. That is not what they wanted because they had meat. It must be something else then. What is it? It is... go. It's a very confusing thing. They start the commentaries on this page, but they want to put all those voices around the text. So for the rest of that commentary, you have to go to the next page. 
the rest of the Sfatimet's commentary. It must be that they were seeking an excuse. Right? So you've got this little paragraph. Right? This little paragraph. It must be that they were seeking an excuse. An excuse for what? Sfatimet, just before our text, it is written, hit avu ta'ava. Literally, how's he going to translate this? They craved a craving. What is he saying? They craved a craving. It's very interesting. He's going to go even further. And he's going to suggest they did not crave anything. They weren't craving... They they weren't craving anything. They were craving having a craving. (laughs) How twisted is, right? They were craving a craving. It says it right there in the Torah. That's how bad it was. But the Sfatimet is going to forgive them a little. Because he's going to say it's still still arrogance, but, but watch what he does. He says, indeed, Israel did not crave meat. For after Sinai, they were already free from the evil impulse, meaning to kill and eat animals. (coughs) Rather, they craved a craving. They yearned to have a bodily craving for meat. It seemed to them that it would be preferable to come under the power of craving meat and then be able to demonstrate that they could withstand the temptation and that they could eat the meat in holiness and purity and thereby bring pleasure to God. So what is Sfatimet saying? Right? Not that they liked suffering. He says they wanted to crave meat. They didn't crave meat. But they they wanted to crave meat so that if they craved it and then declined it, they would show how spiritually attached to God they were. And what happened with that it backfired, right? But that was not proper in God's eyes. I love this Fatimah. Listen where he goes. He's so good. That was not proper in God's eyes. For no person needs to make a test for themselves. Even if by means of this, they merit a very high spiritual rung. For this way of self-contrived testing necessarily involves conniving and deception and self-importance and arrogance. A person who indeed loves God is more satisfied when they are simply able to serve without any mental games of craving and temptation. Okay? So now I'm questioning the relationship of the people with God because there seems to be some inauthenticity there. If you have this relationship, why can't you just either do that or speak to God this way? And if God is saying that's not right, why won't you just tell them this instead of so the spotted man's not going to worry about that. <laughs> spotted man's not going to worry about what. So for the spotted man, they were punished for their arrogance in thinking, I'm going to set up for myself a test and then I'm going to overcome that. And that's going to show how well I serve God because that is just as dangerous, right? As what we talked about a minute ago, right? Really having the craving. That's dangerous in its own way. The Svatimet is pointing to something. He's using it as a, as a teaching. He's using When people say, well, did he really believe that was what was going on? The, the Svatimet is using this to teach his own 
school of thought and his own spiritual principles. So what he points out to me are the people who love to deny themselves things and then want to turn to everybody else and say, you live in luxury, right? That you don't, you can't possibly have a spiritual life because you live in a nice house. You put your head on a pillow every night. I sleep on a rock. I know what it is to love God, right? Do, you, do we know these people who, and we're not talking about the people who really live in poverty to really serve. That's not what we're, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm going to, right? And I'm going to suffer or I'm going to, I'm going to want what you're wearing too, Judith. You always wear really lovely things. I love your jewelry. Um, and I really, I really want to wear all of that, but, but I'm going to refrain because I serve God and I, I deal with my craving to wear beautiful things, um, and I handle it and I manage it because I put other things above that. Right? It's, (laughs) it's very dangerous. Um, okay, here's, here's, and I'm not gonna try to make anybody angry, but one of the ones that makes me crazy is, well, the reason she has cancer, she just couldn't let go of her anger. And she's clearly really, right? This is what people say. This is where people go. And they're well-intentioned, but it's spiritual junk food, right? When, you know what, if you could just release that, if you could let go of the past and let go of your anger, you know, you wouldn't have heart disease. So it sounds like it's about spirituality when in fact it's about blaming the victim, right? It's about saying, I know way more than you could ever possibly know about the spiritual life um, and disempowers people and makes them feel like their relationship to God or to the holy or to the sacred in the world isn't good enough, isn't legitimate, isn't valid, because if it were, you wouldn't clearly be wearing those shoes. You know, you would wear Payless shoes, you know, like... Me. It sounds humble, but it's arrogant. It's, that's what the Sadamet is saying. There is a humility, and that's funny you use that word, right? Because in with the example of Moses, right? That that it's people sound humble, and they use it as spiritual humility when it's in truth extraordinary arrogance. And that the Svatimet is not looking to blame people. He's not looking to bring anybody down. He was a Hasidic master. He's trying to empower his people. He's trying to talk to Tevya. Truly. He's talking to Tevya. Don't worry that your work is schlepping in the mud all day and taking care of, you know, the cows and the chickens and your daughters and trying to marry them. Don't worry. That is absolutely, legitimately a spiritual life. If you understand that you're serving God and serving your family and trying to live a good life and be an honest person, the Holy One, blessed be He, will, it's, it's fine with that. The Master of the Universe smiles on you, right? And that's the message of, of this movement, of, of the Hasidic movement. And for me, it's like, it's always a really important reminder, because while, thank God, I'm not schlepping like Tevya through the mud under constant danger of a pogrom or my family being, you know, kicked off the land, there's, there's great comfort in His words to me, right? That, don't worry that someone else seems like they have it all together vis-a-vis the religious life. Don't worry about it. Are you doing your job today? Are you showing up with some words in heart for Torah? That's all. Okay. Then you're good. Right? It's like, and don't worry 
about the ones who look so important and they're on the cover of the Jewish Journal. D- don't worry. Right? Decide, right? Just do your job. Right? And there's a way that it's so comforting. He does his work really well, I think. And to take an episode like this and like, right? Turn it, turn it so far inside out. I'm like, you gotta love it. It's so Jewish. It's so Jewish. So, uh, may we each, uh, lean into the, uh, possibilities of our own work in this world. I gave you a second piece uh, by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. What I love about that piece is he says the reason Moshe has a breakdown right now is because Jethro has gone back. Right before this, Jethro leaves and goes back to Midian. And remember, that was his teacher. That was the one who said, this is wrong. You can't do this all by yourself. You need help. You need to set up a system. right? And that it's because Yitro goes back to Midian that Moshe Moshe can't, Moshe can't deal. And that the next time we see Moshe get in trouble, when he strikes the rock, is just after Miriam dies. And so the Rabbi Jonathan Sachs piece is very touching to me that, that Moshe can only do his job, and it's a horrible job. Who would want that job? Nobody would want that job. Um, think of the President of the United States. Who wants that job? Um, and Moshe didn't want that job, as, as we said. But he's got that job, right? And it's a horrible job. But he can do it as long as he's got people around him that he loves and that he trusts and that can support him. And that it's when Yitro leaves that he has a meltdown. And when Miriam dies, that's when he hits that he can't deal. And his stress is too much and he breaks. Um, you know, he gets it back together, but, but he loses the people he loves and cannot quite cope with all the stress of his, his everyday life with the Israelites. And I just thought that was a very touching way to look at, at it's not an isolated incident that it's related for Moshe to his dependence on the people he loves which I thought was our great leaders is truly human. That, and that's where Sachs goes is that's the kind of leaders we lift up and celebrate um, I mean and he, he owns that, that Moshe has some issues you know that he should have trusted God would handle this and instead what Moshe says is how am I going to feed quail to all these people where am I going to get that right and Sachs says this is his flaw is thinking that he has to do it all himself right that the thinking it's his job as the leader to do it all and that that's where he makes a really big mistake um, he doesn't just kind of turn to God and, and turn it over he, he gets all upset that I'm supposed to do everything Right, um, and and it's another thing we do, don't we? We we think we got to do it all, and then we get really crabby, right, uh, and really resentful. You know, it's only when we can really ask for help from those people that we love and depend on um, that we're able to withstand all the pressures and all the stresses of our lives, and then be able to live with with compassion and and gentleness and respect, um, and bring greater holiness into the world. Shabbat shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.